What kind of a show are you guys putting on here today? You're not interested in art? No. Now look, we're going to do this thing. We're going to have a conversation. From Chicago, this is Film Spotting. I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. My fiancé, Dylan, was super sexy and so rich, but I wasn't going to marry him. Wait, you broke up with Dylan? I thought she stole him. And I never looked back. He cried so hard, like whiny. Where are you going? It's true, that wasn't my finest hour. You kind of look like a Dylan. Greta Gerwig with Lola Kirk in that clip from Mistress America, the latest collaboration between Gerwig and writer-director Noah Baumbach. The two last worked together on 2012's well-received Francis Ha. A review of Mistress America, plus our top five desert island directors. That and more. Wait, where are we going? Ahead on Film Spotting. Spotting is brought to you by our great friends over at Mubi, a curated online cinema that brings its members a hand-picked selection of the best independent, international, and classic films. Available now at Mubi, Dirty Like an Angel. Too often, it's the men who get to be provocateurs, which is one of the reasons Mubi loves French psychosexual mistress Catherine Bria. Before Fat Girl, before Romance, one of her earliest films is this ace underworld drama. Also, Viva L'Amour. There are rumors that Josh, one of our big blind spots, Sai Ming Liang, a master of contemplative cinema, deadpan humor, and wry melancholy, may retire. Mubi hopes not, and this August they're featuring a series on Sai featuring his 1994 breakthrough. One more movie pick here, Foreign Correspondent. In his second Hollywood film, Hitchcock delivered a wartime thriller sparkling with wit and intrigue, also featured one of the master of suspense's most memorable murders. The Academy nominated it for Best Picture. This was the same year his Rebecca won. Everyday Movies curators introduce a new title, and you have 30 days to watch it. That means there's always 30 wonderful films to enjoy, all for only $4.99 a month. Plus, when you use their mobile apps, you can download films to watch offline. Listeners of Film Spotting can try Movie Free for a month. Just go to movie.com slash filmspotting to redeem now. That's M-U-B-I dot com slash filmspotting. You're listening to Film Spotting. With the kids going back to school and the summer movie season coming to an end, Josh and I are planning one more little getaway to a desert island. We're doing separate desert islands, though, right? If you insist. So this week, we pack for the trip with our top five desert island directors, the five directors whose filmographies we'd share a lifetime of solitude or at least a long weekend with. That's later in the show. But first, sorry, Noah Baumbach, you've been voted off my island, even though I did quite enjoy Mistress America. Hi. This is Tracy Fishko. I go to college in the city, and my mom said I should call you. Uh, my mom is marrying your dad. Do you want to hang out? Do you know where Times Square is? Tracy! Times Square is so crazy. Isn't it? I don't know anyone who lives here. Yours truly. I got off the bus from Jersey. I thought this was the cool place to live. It's Times Square. So stylish. I know. I freelance as an interior decorator. You know the Bowery Hotel? Oh my god, yeah. Well, if you walk about a block south, there's a laser hair removal center that's very hip. I did the waiting room. She lived exactly how a young woman should live. Who wants to spend her youth well? 
Must we document ourselves all the time? Must we? She did everything and nothing. You don't know what you're selling. No one will know how to buy it. What are you selling? So many things. Being around her was like being in New York City. I'm an autodidact. Do you know what that means? Yes. That word is one of the things I self-taught myself. We split on While We're Young, Adam, Noah Baumbach's first film from 2015. Boy, did we ever. And in one of our conversations, it might not have been our official review, I mentioned how I wished he would write less about what he knew, the angsty, white, male, New York intellectual scene. With the help of Greta Gerwig, he's done that on Mistress America, his latest. Gerwig and Baumbach wrote the script while he directs. It's the same formula behind their 2012 collaboration, Francis Ha. Here, Gerwig plays Brooke, a 30-something creative entrepreneur, at least in her own mind, who takes her soon-to-be stepsister Tracy, played by Lola Kirk, under her fabulous wing. Their relationship sets into motion a screwball comedy dynamic that eventually inflates into full-blown farce, which I found to be quite funny and a relief compared to While We're Young in particular. How has the gerwig Bombach creative partnership been for you, Adam? Have you found it to be as fruitful as I have and Mistress America to be as amusing as I did? Well, I like Greenberg and I like Francis Ha. Mistress America, of course, as you said, it's their second full-on collaboration as not only director-star but co-writers. And it's my favorite film of the three by far. It's one of my favorite Baumbach films and it's one of my favorite films of the year period. Great. So, yeah, that's an easy answer, Josh. I've been pleased with the partnership, and I expect it will only continue to bear fruit. At least I'm hoping it will. I do think what's interesting here is that even though this is ostensibly a Gerwig vehicle, and I'm sure we're going to talk about her a lot, she is essentially the title character here. She's the catalyst for most of the action, very much a dominating presence throughout. But for me, it's Lola Kirk and her performance that grounds this movie and makes it much more than just the Greta Gerwig show. Kirk has to make Tracy a real person. At times, she's passive and pathetic, but she's also engaged and ambitious and whip-smart and vulnerable. And that all comes through. All those contradictions come through. I do think Gerwig's quite good here and elsewhere. She's good at playing a certain type of capital C character. I think about Violet in Whit Stillman's Damsels in Distress. She drives the action with her manners or mannerisms and even her voice and phrasing. And in this movie, there's a line where she says, adultery? (laughs) And she says it so incredulously that I think it actually adds three or four syllables to the word. (laughs) The difference between the damsel's character Gerwig plays and the character Brooke she plays here, I think, is that Brooke is a character who's very much aware that she's a character in a certain time and place. And Violet was anachronistic. So Gerwig plays Brooke with this hint, just the right hint of self-awareness. She's a late millennial Gatsby. She's redefining herself, not just day to day, but moment to moment. And that awareness comes through in the character in lines like, I'm an autodidact. And then I think she asks Tracy, do you know what that is? (laughs) That she has to explain what an autodidact is or can't wait to is the most autodidactic thing ever. So that's fantastic. And the punchline is something like, that's one of the first things I taught myself (laughs) what it means. Exactly. (laughs) There's so many great layers to these lines. No, there are. And Gerwig and Baumbach's awareness comes through in the way, for example, Brooke walks down those steps when we first meet her in Times Square and she welcomes Tracy with open arms and says, welcome to the great white way. And even that choice of cliched phrasing and the whole time she's walking down like she is Miss America, uh-huh. she's just a bit too awkward and the arms are outstretched and the, the smile is plastered on her face just a little bit too long that 
It gives you a real sense of performance to that character. So we do get a more manic side comedically to Gerwig than I've seen in any of her previous roles, but I'm not sure she's doing anything dramatically different. I do think she's just doing it more intensely. For me, what makes this movie really wonderful ultimately isn't Greta Gerwig the actress, it's Greta Gerwig the co-screenwriter. Yeah, absolutely. As I mentioned, the, these lines that if they weren't all hers, she certainly had a hand in formulating and delivering. Uh, they're just great. And they go by so quickly that uh, it's one of those films that you want to rewatch because you're laughing over the next joke often. I'm guessing we were. I certainly felt like I was. Mm-hmm. Let me go back to Kirk because you are right. She she deserves as much attention as Gerwig. It's not the flashier part, but it is the one that the movie desperately needs. She's our eyes as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, it really opens with her and her story as a college freshman and feeling a little bit lost. Very nice characterization of that experience as well in these opening scenes that Baumbach does. Uh, Very sweet of this woman trying to find her place, getting rejected by the snooty literary society. I I just love how there's the one guy whittling in the room as they're looking at the people who are putting their submissions on the door, and he just glares at them. Like, how dare you submit something to us? Right. And that's a great recurring joke. But Kirk is – so she's the straight woman to Gerwig's act. They're, this is really a duet, this film, between the two of them. And she has to let all of Gerwig's energy and lines bounce off of her, partly because that's how it's structured and partly because that's the Brooke character. No matter what Tracy says, Brooke is going to somehow redirect it to be about her again. And so you could say, well, is that – maybe a thankless part for Kirk, but no, she makes it absolutely work because she's hitting the right beats as well in those moments. And I think what she has actually is, uh, I differ with you a little bit on how much self-awareness I felt that Brooke had because Tracy is the one who has the awareness of Brooke's act fairly early on. When she first meets her, she's amused, kind of dazed by her, and definitely falls under her spell a little bit. But it doesn't take long for her to see, okay, she doesn't have it quite together as much as she wants. And then how does Tracy respond to that is what drives a lot Mm -hmm. of the action um, and the narrative as well. So Kirk gives a great performance. I had not realized that she was the uh, neighbor in Gone Girl until someone pointed that out to me after. Yeah, I actually saw the movie with a listener and at the end of the film they pointed that out josh and i i had no idea but instantly but that's one of those parts that you you know she really nailed her few moments in gone girl Mm -hmm. and so you can see um that there's a lot of talent there and i hope she gets uh, chances to be maybe the main focus of a film at some point but gerwig here it's very different from the other performances I've seen of hers. I haven't seen them all, but of the ones I've seen, they rely a lot on this dazed sort of guilelessness where she's not really sure of where she fits in the world. And the comedy comes more out of watching this unique, almost like trampled flower Mm -hmm. and uh, how she's going to survive. She's quirky. She's goofy. So she makes you laugh this way. Yeah. And maybe she's a little manipulative, but she doesn't know she's being manipulative. She's not being exploitive. Right. Exactly. She's not in, she's not active in the humor or in her narratives. And here Brooke is driving all of the action Mm -hmm. because she's a big character. At the same time, that involves hitting bigger jokes that Gerwig does, bigger lines and beats. And she makes it, she pulls it off flawlessly. You know, it doesn't ever get too big. And I think that you, you pick the right moment. The defining moment of her character is her entrance because when she's coming down those stairs and here's where I don't think there's self-awareness yet. No, that is also Brooke's journey. And Tracy is the one who brings her along to see that 
I'm not really fooling anybody except maybe myself. When she comes down those stairs, what's so great about it is the awkwardness you mentioned. She delivers her line, her grand entrance, and then realizes, I've got about 12 steps to go. What am I going to do <laughs> now? now? What? And they both yeah. kind of like look at each other like, oh, this is kind of awkward. And that encapsulates pretty much all of her interactions because no one is as impressed by Brooke as Brooke is. Mm-hmm. Pretty much until we get to the fantastic farcical full-blown screwball full comedy blown yeah. door you know people coming in and out of doors set in this Connecticut mansion uh, that really for me was uh, the the movie's highlight and then that's where some of the self-realization starts to settle in for Brooke I'm impressed Brooke it takes a lot of moxie to start a restaurant thanks you're doing it babe you're out there doing something besides amassing and hoarding money. If I could figure out how to amass and hoard money, I'd do it. Well, you could have married me or a dozen other guys, but you wanted to be your own person. Yeah, no, I'm over that now. <laughs> you're funny because you don't know you're funny. I know I'm funny. There's nothing I don't know about myself. That's why I can't do therapy. Yeah, I think that moment is not a moment of awareness at all for Brooke. That's what makes it so funny. But it is Gerwig, the writer... And performer and Baumbach, the writer and director, cueing us in to her being a little bit more lost than she is going to let on because she acts like she's in complete control all the time. You're listening to Film Spotting. We're discussing the new film from writer-director Noah Baumbach and his co-screenwriter and star Greta Gerwig. And I just said that actually very much like Gerwig talks in this film because one of the key things about her performance, I was watching some clips again today, is she just keeps talking. Mm -hmm. She doesn't take any breath. So it's like reading one of those Hemingway sentences that just goes on forever, comma after comma. And it works because she's so self-absorbed and at times so unself-aware in contrast to the Lola Kirk character, who I think she's almost cursed by her self-awareness, that she recognizes unconsciously or not, that if she just keeps talking, then she never has to listen Listen to anyone else else. or really listen to (laughs) herself. She doesn't have to listen to even what she's saying. And you mentioned when Tracy first arrives at school and setting up that character, this movie had me really early because I love when there are seemingly throwaway lines that really resonate. And I cue onto them and I wonder if they kind of set up the film in a nutshell for me. And this line did. It's when she first meets her roommate and her roommate is telling her about this orientation thing at convocation and how it's so funny there's no way you should go to this nobody goes to this nobody cool goes to it anyway and the question tracy asks is so genuine and sweet and insightful because i think it's how a lot of us live at least how i feel like i live most of the time she says how do you know all this Mm -hmm. right that feeling of just being lost as if everybody else has been given a manual and they skipped you and you don't even know why you got skipped, that that sentiment was just so perfectly captured in that moment. And in a way, that's why her relationship with Brooke, I think, is so liberating. Because mm-hmm. at first she sees her as this woman who has it all together, who lives in New York City on her own, has boyfriend and great aspirations and potential careers. And she thinks, okay, if I model myself after her... I'll have it figured out. Mm -hmm. So that's one maybe false sort of liberation. The real liberation comes when she sees, okay, this woman who's 10 years older than me has been living in New York, probably has it less together than I do. And what does she get from that? A sort of confidence. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then that's the growth that her character takes. Now, there are – it gets back to her writing aspirations and how this short story that she's formulate incorporates elements of Brooke. And that's where sort of this ethical – 
quandary comes into play of does she use her relationship with Brooke not only for her own growth, but also manipulatively for her art. Yeah, it just occurred to me, actually, as you were talking, that there is a moment where you start to wonder whether or not the Tracy character, as much as she recognizes that Brooke is full of it, she continues to seem very much invested in when her success. When does it turn into egging her on? Yeah, and so yeah. is it a matter of actually needing her and wanting her to succeed, even though she thinks she's doomed to failure, because she's along for the ride and she wants to see where it goes and she wants to even then see where it will go and how she can turn that into her own piece of quote-unquote fiction? Or is it because she is just drawn to her and sort of against all odds wants to see if Brooke is going to somehow succeed despite what seems to be her fate. And I think it could be a little bit of both. And I think that's what I love about that character. I think by the time we get to the Connecticut house, she has made the decision that she's going to do what she can to push this thing along for material. Hmm. And I didn't really think of that. Really? I I was totally I was buying her as as being a little bit more innocent in that. I think at that point she's made the turn. Hmm. And now whether or not if you hold that against her is one of the interesting questions of this film, because towards the end, there's a conversation between Tracy and Brooke and not to give too much away, but the subject of forgiveness comes up and Tracy says, well, I'm not here to ask for forgiveness. So she seems to have realized that she mishandled the relationship in some way, but is not necessarily saying I wouldn't do it again. Exactly. So so well, I like yeah. how the movie leaves that in the air as one sure. of those open questions uh, in terms of, and this is something that's a through line that runs through some of other Baumbach's pictures is the ethics of creative pursuit. Mm-hmm. And so I did like, despite what I said at the beginning about how this sends him off in a much better direction, I like how this lightly touches on some of the other themes that he's explored. They're very similar movies way, while we're young. Th- there are some, yeah, there are some similar concerns, but here for me, it was just, they move so much more quickly and so much lighter. The whole film is lighter on its feet. But one of those is this idea of ambition, not only when you're older and how that compares to a younger generation, which while we're young specifically addresses, but ambition, even when you're young, creative ambition, like what what that puts on you to say, here's how I'm going to define myself if I achieve these things, because Brooke certainly looks at herself that way, yet has spent, you know, her 20s not really achieving any of them. And here is Tracy just at the start of that decade. Is she going to fall into that same trap? How is she going to define success in her art, mm-hmm. in writing. So I do, I, I like how, you know, it's continuing these threads from his other films and and just, to my mind, just in a completely hysterical way. I found it hysterical as well. And that's why when I said that Gerwig, the screenwriter here, the co-screenwriter is really, for me, the strength of this movie. It's because I was with you laughing a lot. It is a very funny movie, but I love that it's not a tidy screenplay either. And I didn't feel this about While We're Young, or I should say, I felt that this was a strength of that movie as well, that it wasn't tidy, where everything resolves a little bit too neatly. Characters have these really defined strengths and flaws, and they navigate them, and they all become better people. While we're young, dances around it. This movie dances around it as well. But I think in both films, you see characters who have conflicting motivations and contradictory words and actions. And a good example is what you just said. I won't give anything away either, but there's a key part where, speaking of forgiveness... Everybody in the film tells Tracy not to do something, that she'd be a terrible person to do something. And she goes and does it anyway. Mm -hmm. Right. And we don't even really see her have any moral quandary about that. She just does it. So I like the fact that these characters are kind of defining their own ethics and morals as they go. They are making it up as they go. They're trying to define themselves. And I think they're they're untethered in a way to any one 
ethos, you know, or any one worldview. And so they're simply trying to be what they perceive to be their authentic selves. I mean, authenticity is a word, even though I don't think it's ever uttered in this film. And I don't know that it's ever uttered in while we're young. I think both films are very much about that. But these characters are just full of these contradictions and bad choices. And I think because of that, we end up rooting for them. I at least ended up rooting for all of them. And I certainly could identify with them. So the writing's good in those ways. But I also just love the language of the film. It reminded me of course, not just of While We're Young, but of Alex Ross Perry's Listen Up, Philip, a movie we talked about from last year. Yes, both are movies about writers, but the language itself, whether it's in narration or we're hearing what's written on a page or just how the characters converse with each other, it's eloquent, it's smart, it's insightful. Whenever Tracy made a mental note or jotted down something that Brooke said that she could steal for later, I was scribbling it down in my notes because I thought I might end up bringing it up, but also because it was just a good line. And I'm in the right mindset lately, I think, because I did just get done reading partly and then finishing via audiobook Buckley versus Mailer, the book about their relationship and friendship in the 60s. Obviously, both writers, words, very important to them, especially Mailer. I have been diving in a little bit to David Foster Wallace as well. And after seeing the end of the tour, just thinking about word choices and how important they are. Maybe I was in the right headspace for a movie like this to come along, but it's just a very, very smart screenplay. And I did say that I think all these characters are on a quest for authenticity in a world where authenticity can only be manufactured. There's this dream vision that Brooke has about this restaurant. And as they describe it, as they make their pitch at one point, it's so mawkish, down to the name, they want to call it Moms, that just as you're thinking, okay, they've kind of sold me. I'd really love to go to a spot like that. You immediately have to it's her enthusiasm. be confronted. It is, but you immediately, I think it's the authenticity of it too. You buy that vision, but then instantly you have to recognize that it's totally absurd that you would ever look to a restaurant, a product that someone has created to fill those needs in your life. But I think that's what we're all doing. I think that's what all these characters are doing. Yeah, that scene is fantastic because Brooke is just shouting out, ideas off her head of what this restaurant should have. None of them are connected. None of them make sense. But it is what they share in common is her enthusiasm, her vision, her realizing of this dream she has for herself. And at that point, I felt Tracy was still on board. Mm-hmm. You know, She said, great idea, great idea. Even though you know Tracy is smarter, you've been shown that Tracy is smarter than this. She would know these are not good ideas. But she's caught up in the same enthusiastic storm that Brooke casts as we are. So that carries the movie quite a bit. It's It's literary, you're right. But it's always conversational Mm -hmm. as well. It never pushes right over the edge into – and I think this is the performative aspect you were talking about as well. Because Brooke is putting on this larger-than-life persona, it makes sense that she would talk like this. But it's not as highly stylized as either Listen Up, Philip or – a movie no, like I would I would say it is, and it's not. To be frank, it's not as highly stylized as the great 1930s screwball comedies, uh, you know, His Girl Friday or something like that, which is it's certainly trying to be in the tradition of. Those are even more highly stylized. So it does make sense once you get yourself into that mindset that she's talking this quickly and she's being this dumbly smart, mm-hmm. smartly dumb, whichever <laughs> way it is. Yeah. Where she's being smart about the dumb things she's saying, I guess, is, is how I would describe it. And so it is very conversational literary at the same time. And the excerpts we get of Tracy's story about Brooke, which she gives her, you know, another name, a fictional name, but it's obviously her. Those are really good. They are. You I know, mean, that's always the trick, It's a right? story you'd want to read. Yeah. And, and you recognize that. You have to that. believe that others would think it's really good. Yes. And we do. And it also has those observational nuggets that 
somehow the movie strikes a nice balance, I think, of using that literary device and reinforcing what we've already seen and known about Brooke, but with enough of a writerly flair that we don't mind being told it again. And I think that was a real trick for this film, because if they were going to have Tracy just repeating what we already know, it would have been really dull. But they manage, whoever wrote those lines, and maybe it was the two of them together, from Tracy's short story, they managed to hit that sweet spot very well. Absolutely. If it was just repetition or sort of a catalog of what she experienced, and there was no insight from the artist who's putting pen to paper, it wouldn't be good literature, but it is, or it strikes us that way because we are getting those additional insights. And you mentioned the screwball comedy scene. I touched on this one we reviewed while we're young. I thought I saw a real sense of how Baumbach not only used dialogue to elicit humor, but use the camera. And this movie maybe didn't strike me quite as much in terms of some of the choices, but I like that. I like the fact that he very subtly reinforced the humor. There's a scene where Tracy meets a guy who she kind of likes and they have a bond over their writing and they're both rejected. And then you see them walk by each other and then you get her reaction and then get the camera pan to see what she's reacting to, which is the girlfriend who was all of a sudden appeared on his shoulder. Little touches like that where without it, it wouldn't be quite as funny, if that's even the right word. But it's just a little bit of a jarring moment that works. And that screwball comedy scene, that big farcical sequence, that really is. I was trying to think about why that works so well beyond just the choreography of it. Because there is some choreography involved. And there's no doubt a bunch of comedic timing involved. Some characters just say one word or one line interjected at a certain point. But I think why it works, Josh, is because all these new characters that are joining the fray, jumping in with those little bits of dialogue, at the end of the day, they're doing it. We understand. We know enough about all of these characters that we recognize that they're just trying so hard not to be ignored. They're all like the main characters in this film, just trying to have that little bit of recognition, trying to have their voice heard. And if that means occasionally having to say something ridiculous and punctuate a moment or a scene with it, that's what they're going to do. And we should probably say for those who have no idea what we're talking about, this this is a sequence where Brooke has gone to a former boyfriend who is now rich in Connecticut, living with her nemesis that she mentions, Mamie Claire, and uh, to ask them for money for this restaurant business. She's taken because she doesn't have have a car, not only Tracy, but this guy you talked about who Tracy's interested in because he has a car, his girlfriend. There's also a pregnant woman's book club going on at the time. So one of the members there sticks around. Then you have the neighbor (laughs) shows up and he joins because, and it really, you know what it reminded me of? uh, Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown. And it just moved that quickly. I will say when you mentioned like the, the choreography of it, I almost wish they had reduced the number of rooms because it was missing a little bit of, which so much stage farce uses, the claustrophobic phobia of only having so many entrances to so many spaces. Mm-hmm. We kind of got a little lost in this Connecticut mansion, which I realize is part of the point to emphasize the richness of this this guy. But, but really, for the most part, uh, it is the blocking is so on spot and the timing of the dialogue and when your one word is all someone Karen the woman waiting to be Karen, picked up yeah. the pregnant woman you know the way the way Karen keeps getting <laughs> reprimanded for nothing it's just it's it's really delightful and it speaks to the the timing overall that this movie has which we get a great clue right in the opening credits where i thought oh 
this movie's got something going on. Tracy is standing in the doorway of her dorm room. She's backlit, and the roommate yells at her to turn the light out. So the second she flips the switch and the room goes dark except for the doorway, the title, Mistress America, flickers into the dark portion. Mm -hmm. I mean, the, the timing there was so precise, and knowing that this was going to be a little bit broader of a comedy, I thought, okay, they've got the timing down at least. This bodes well. Mistress America is currently out in limited release, including right here in Chicago. If you've seen the film and agree or disagree with our takes, you can email us feedback at filmspotting.net. All right. You asked. We gave it to you. Results from the revised film spotting poll are up next, asking about your favorite director muse combos. Don't worry, early voters. We have final tallies for the original poll, too. Stay with us. My mind is troubled these days. I don't know what to say. About all the crazy things that I have done I don't know what I'm looking for But I know this for sure That I'm the only one not having fun I got my teeth white And my jeans This week, Film Spotting is also proud to be presented by Squarespace, the all-in-one website platform. We often feature listener testimonials here, Josh, and we have this one from Michelle Spare the Rod, Spoil the Surprise, McQuaid Dewurst. That's a mouthful, much like her domain, which we'll get to in a moment, but that is her very own long-ago-given Sam Van Halgren nickname. Michelle writes, longtime listener here, wondering if you'd mind plugging my Squarespace site, which I created using your offer code last year. I'm a composer and have been in need of a professional and cool-looking site for sharing and promoting my music for a long time. Squarespace was exactly what I needed. Tailoring a site to my needs has been way easier than I ever thought it would be. Recently, I've been beefing up the site to help promote an upcoming project called Piano Per Diem. I'm challenging myself to write a new solo piano piece every day for 30 days during the month of September. Not a film-related project, but maybe one that the creative people in your audience might find interesting and might consider supporting. I'm currently running a Kickstarter campaign to fund performers' fees and travel expenses for the two pianists who will be premiering the pieces in November. So if that sounds like a creative endeavor you'd like to help support, or if you just want to check out Michelle's Squarespace-powered site, you can do that at michellemcquaidewers.com. Easier if you just go to filmspotting.net and click on the link directly to Michelle's site in our show notes. Michelle talked about the ease of using Squarespace, and that's one of the great things about it. There's no coding required, so the site's going to look professionally designed regardless of your skill level. They offer intuitive, easy-to-use tools. There's state-of-the-art technology powering your site, so that will ensure security and stability. Squarespace is trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. They're offering a free domain if you sign up for a year. So start your free trial site today. You don't need to use a credit card. You can do it at squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up for Squarespace, make sure to use the offer code FILM, F-I-L-M, to get a special offer on your first purchase. I got my head on. 
do you do? You're not an engineer. You're not a designer. You can't put a hammer to a nail. I built the circuit board. The graphical interface was stolen. So how come 10 times in a day, I read Steve Jobs as a genius. What do you do? Musicians play their instruments. I play the orchestra. Welcome back to Film Spotting. It's actually been a couple of months since I invoked the name Fassbender, Josh, so I think I'm okay to mention him here. Yeah, but we have to officially call him now Film Spotting Madness Champion, Michael Fassbender. How did I forget? We absolutely have to. That was Film Spotting Madness Champion Michael Fassbender as Steve Jobs from the trailer to the new film, also called Steve Jobs, that's scheduled for release in October. Fassbender would be enough to make Steve Jobs, for me, one of the most anticipated films of the fall, but... You add in Danny Boyle directing, Aaron Sorkin writing, that really doesn't hurt. More anticipated fall movie talk next week on the show. Michael Phillips will join us. We'll share the top five movies we're most excited to see and the top five questions we have about the fall movie season. That sounds like two shows to me. Well, I think we're going to skip a review, so we're always skimping on something for our listeners, Josh. We're going to get into the dual top five, but if you remember our most anticipated movies of 2015 of the year overall, we did kind of a two-parter where we had some cinematic questions we were looking for answers to. So Michael Phillips will play along. That's all next week. A bit later in the show, this week's poll question asks you to pick your most anticipated movie of the fall. But first, let's get to the results from our disastrous most recent poll question. Don't! Look! One, one crawl behind the refrigerator. It'll turn up in our bed at night. Will you get out of here with that thing? Talk to him, you speak shellfish. Woody Allen and Diane Keaton chasing lobsters around the kitchen. I always assumed that was a Hamptons kitchen in that scene from Annie Hall. Allen and Keaton, one of five options we gave you a couple weeks back when we asked you to name your favorite director-muse pair. Five options, I should say, that we originally gave you because due to public outcry about some major oversights in the poll, we had a first-ever poll retraction and revision, which we'll get to here in a sec. Even the name, Josh, frankly, gave a few of our listeners fits the notion of muse being used here. And in some way, did that diminish the contributions of these actresses? I wasn't aware of that controversy. Well, yeah, we had those conversations as well. And I get it. But we were simply trying to find the right quick descriptor for a collaboration like Noah Baumbach and Greta Gerwig from Mistress America, that was also romantic in nature. And of course, every one of these choices are examples of true partnerships where the actresses were far more vital to the artistic process than simply being what a muse normally would be, at least in the conventional sense, just inspiration. So the choices we gave you originally, Woody and Diane Keaton, Woody Allen and Mia Farrow, Ingmar Bergman and Liv Ullman, David Lynch and Laura Dern, and Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman. Josh, how did it come out? So this is before we pulled the plug. That's right. In last place, Woody Allen and Mia Farrow, 6%. Very close to them, Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman, 7%. Then a big jump to Ingmar Bergman and Liv Ullman. They received 18% of the vote. Second place went to David Lynch and Laura Dern who would eventually get booted. (laughs) Yeah, they didn't even make the revised poll. (laughs) While they were around, they got 24% of the vote. But Woody is not only in last place, but here at the top two with Diane Keaton, 40% of the vote. Joran Kane from Valdosta, Georgia, wrote, I couldn't be more of a Woody Allen fan, so my default choice would be Alan Keaton. She seemed to be more of a creative muse and more indispensable to those films than Mia Farrow, but 
I have to sacrifice them all in order to save scenes from a marriage. Just about all of the Bergman-Ullman collaborations are indispensable, but that film must remain for future generations. And it's hard to argue with Joran there. I love scenes from a marriage. Jake Strunk from Brooklyn, New York, said, I was compelled to comment after hearing your discussion on director Muse pairings where you failed to even mention the work of Jean-Luc Godard and Anna Karina. They even fit Adam's strict criteria. Between 1960 and 1966, the pair collaborated on seven films. Among them, Godard's best, most notably My Life to Live, A Woman is a Woman, Alphaville, and Band of Outsiders. In The Little Soldier's best scene, Karina on screen fields very personal questions directly from Godard off screen which would later be overdubbed. Karina is not acting. She blushes and flusters in response to the prying director while the camera gazes. The scene is uniquely awkward, overtly sexual, and ripe with meta undertones. The director and actress would be buried just months later. In the words of the great director himself, all you need for a movie is a gun and a girl. The girl is Anna Karina, and she was the only muse Godard needed to create his most vibrant, radical, and exciting work, a collection of work more essential and prolific than anything on the current pole. Yes, this omission is made even more glaring by Ms. Karina's appearance in the movie ad directly above the poll at filmspotting.net. That's true. Right above the poll on our main page, we have an ad for our sponsor, Mubi, and it features Anna Karina. So we were appropriately chastened by comments like Jake's and many comments less polite than Jake's. And that prompted us to revise the original poll to include a few names that we overlooked and to drop a few of the options that maybe didn't exactly fit the very elaborate criteria we initially established. So in the revised poll, we dropped Woody and Mia. They lost in the first round. They've been... Seemed like that was a good choice. Sure. We dropped Lynch and Dern for failing to marry, have a scandalous love affair, or a child out of wedlock. Woody and Diane Keaton stayed. Bergman and Ullman and Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman stayed. We added John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins. Gadar and Anna Karina, you're welcome. Jake from Brooklyn, and thank you as well. Federico Fellini and Giulietta Messina, and Michelangelo Antonioni and Monica Vitti. Much more respectable. More respectable, still not sufficient for some listeners who couldn't believe we left I off. I told you, once you open the, the floodgates... <laughs> Our very, our very is going to be challenged with torches and pitchforks now. Yeah, I know. I know. We have opened the door. Share the results, Josh. In last place... Of poll number two, Roberto Rossellini and Ingrid Bergman, they got 5%. Antonioni and Vitti got 6%. Fellini and Messina got 8%. Godard and Anna Karina, for all the championing, only 12% of this vote. Jumping up now, John Cassavetes and Jenna Rollins received 16% of the vote in second place. From the original poll, mind you, Ingmar Bergman and Liv Ullman, 18% of the vote. But yes, Woody Allen and Diane Keaton still win with 35% this time. So is this just because... As smart as our listeners are and sophisticated and cultured and worldly, they've seen all these films from all these different directors. At the end of the day, Woody and Diane Keaton, they were there together in Annie Hall, and that's probably the most widely seen film of any of the films that we would pick from these collaborators. Is that why they won, or do people just love the collaboration that much? I think that's fair, that that's the most widely seen, and that's where I was leaning in... My vote, and it didn't really change when we heard the poll for me, I hate to say, because my other choice was Bergman and Ullman. And I yeah. think that's where I have to ultimately go, if only because – and this goes against what I usually say when we talk about movies that will be destroyed and you only have the other ones to watch over and over because comedies generally favor better for me in watching over and over. But I – you know, 
those Bergman and Ullman films are, there's so much to dig into yeah. in those that... You could unpack Persona for a few months. You could spend a long time on those, whereas as much as I do like the Alan and Keaton comedies among my favorite films of his, I'd be willing to give those up mm. in comparison. Well... As for comments this time around, we only got one really worth mentioning to the revised poll, Josh. It was Franco, location unknown. He simply wrote, I'm going other, Woody and Mia. (laughs) Of course. (laughs) Well played, Franco. See, we truly, truly cannot win. Now that we apparently have mathematical certainty that Woody and Diane Keaton are the best director-muse combo in the history of cinema, we can move on to this week's poll. And please, don't get me started on how much effort it took for us to arrive at this question. This was really something. You talk about the I mean, email exchanges, Josh. Were you guys like just sort of panicking and wanting to get this right? That there are how many corpses left? Mm. After two poles have yeah. died yeah. in the formation of this third That's pole. Is that correct. what I saw? That's correct. Okay, good. <laughs> but in anticipation of next week's fall movie preview extravaganza, we're asking you quite simply it is simple after all, Josh. What is your most anticipated fall movie? Important criteria we are defining fall as through Thanksgiving weekend. So after all that banter back and forth, us and Sam Van Halgren. I didn't vet any of these choices. So it's entirely possible we're going to have to redo this one with the three obvious movies that got left off. And that's where we're at. So let's see how we did. Let's see what the feedback's like. Josh, the options are. Crimson Peak. This is Guillermo del Toro's Haunted House movie. Stars Mia Vasakovska, Tom Hiddleston, Jessica Chastain, coming out October 16. Bridge of Spies, another Spielberg-Hanks collaboration. It's a Cold War-era historical drama that has an October 16 release date as well. Hunger Games, Mockingjay Part 2, wrapping up that franchise on November 20. The Martian. Matt Damon gets left behind on Mars. Jessica Chastain is in this one, too. Ridley Scott is directing. October 2 is the release. Spectre is the latest James Bond film. Daniel Craig's back for that, as is Skyfall's Sam Mendes. November 6 is the release date. The aforementioned Steve Jobs with Danny Boyle directing comes out October 9. And my beloved Robert Zemeckis is back with The Walk. It's a dramatization of a story that was first told in your beloved documentary, Man on Wire. My eventual tattoo. Yes, your eventual I'm tattoo. It. My number one. Joseph Gordon-Levitt here as Philippe Petit. Now, we're also including, and this should just be our coverall, other. That's right. So <laughs> if, you're, if you're lighting your torch now and sharpening your pitchfork, you could vote other. So we have not, I'm guessing... Neither of us have started actually planning for this fall movie preview yet. No, I have I'm no not. idea what my final top five will be. But looking over those options, which one is the one movie all seven or eight of those Josh are playing in a theater at the same time? You can only see one and you will never be able to see the others. You have to make your choice. Which one do you walk into? Crimson Peak. Really? Yes. Even after, even after Pacific Rim. Yeah, You're because, sticking with yeah, that because Pacific Rim was, you know, it just wasn't his sort of material. It was too big. It was too blockbuster. Like precisely his material. Uh, not not That's the way it was so done. Good. Not the way it was done. So this is more in low-key horror. Can't wait for Crimson Peak. Crimson Peak is probably the right answer because you're seeing in Del Toro a true artist, and you really don't know what you're going to get, and it just could be surprising and phenomenal. But, but, <laughs> honestly, 
Hunger even Games with, Mockingjay Part 2. You with, can't wait no. now that you're on board. Film Spotting Madness champion Michael Fassbender, registered trademark. Yes. Spectre. No. Yeah. Yeah, that's the one I want to see. Of all those movies, Spectre is number one. You're, you're lying. I am not lying. I'm not lying. I love Daniel Craig as Bond. I thought Sam Mendes did an amazing job with Skyfall, Christoph Waltz. I liked Skyfall. Well, I really like Skyfall, so but do you think I can't wait to see Spectre. Do you think Spectre will have much in it that you couldn't get from watching Skyfall again? I don't know. I don't know, but I want to find out. I think the trailer looks that good. So that's my choice. Deal with it, Josh. We want to know what your choice is. Vote for your most anticipated fall movie at filmspotting.net. If you leave a comment, and we hope you do, please let us know where you're writing from. Speaking of feedback, we're going to do this a little bit backwards, and we're going to tease the next top five Desert Island directors with a little bit of your feedback. And why can we do this? Well, we can do this because this is, of course, a revisit. This is a top five that we previously aired on the show, and we got a lot of great responses. Josh, let's share a couple of them now, starting with Aaron Hammond. He's in Caledonia, New York, or at least he was back when we did this top five. For my Desert Island directors, I'd probably have to go with Kurosawa, the Coens, Hitchcock, and the top two, without a doubt, are the Archers and Martin Scorsese. If I'm going to be trapped on an island, I at least need to have the red shoes with me, since the ballet sequence might be the greatest 17 minutes in the history of the medium, and Life and Death of Colonel Blimp is the greatest biopic ever made, and it's not even about a real person. Well played. But Martin Scorsese is my favorite director, and Goodfellas is my favorite film, but I think his versatility is underrated. I want to have an oeuvre that finds a filmmaker diving into his favorite themes of guilt, ego, sexual repression, the allure of criminality, etc., in a variety of different modes. The same guy made Alice Doesn't Live Here Anymore, The King of Comedy, The Age of Innocence, Hugo, and The Wolf of Wall Street. Five wildly different films, just examples of an all-encompassing body of work. It also helps that a lot of his movies are really freaking long, so it will be easy to pass the time watching all of them. (laughs) Great, great choices from Aaron. Jeff from Nishanik Station said, seeing that I will be depressed, hungry, and mentally unstable. These directors would soothe my savage mind. Number one, Hal Ashby. Number two, Werner Fassbender. Number three, Gus Van Zant. Number four, John Cassavetes. And number five, Billy August. Definitely the only listener who wrote in with Billy August. And I'm going to lay out a little bit of film spotting confession right now. I can't name you one Billy August film. So I'm with you. Maybe a marathon topic Apparently. at some point, if there are enough films, presumably, to do a marathon. Another list here from Mike King. Mine are as follows. The Coen Brothers, Wes Anderson, Peter Weir, Ken Loach, and Gus Van Sant. How did the Coen Brothers not make my top five? I'm sure I came up with some elaborate criteria to exclude them. I think we both had them as honorable mentions. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, that does that does seem suspicious. odd and suspicious. My list is completely invalid before we even get to it, which is what we'll do next. Stay with us. I could make you want me, make you need me, make you mine. I could make it holy, make it special, make it right. I could make you want me, make you need me. Tired of 
This year we'll make enough on the harvest that I'll be able to hire some more hands and then you can go to the academy next year. You must understand I need you here, Luke. But it's a whole other year. Donation time here, Josh. But after that clip, do we really need to comment? I mean, does that just speak for itself or what? It sounded a little familiar there, some of that dialogue. <laughs> Maybe that's where you got it. Derek from Melbourne, formerly of Los Angeles, wrote in with this note. I've been following the excitement over insert phrase here with great interest, though I must say that as a fellow user of the phrase in question, I felt a bit defensive on both Josh's behalf and my own over the initial calling out. As a recognition of a tendency in Josh, it was funny, but as a reprimand against poor grammar, it took me aback. Insert phrase here has been around for so long that it has happily become part of our vernacular. And if you don't believe me, you need to look no further than the Pantheon for a prominent example. In the original Star Wars, when Uncle Owen is trying to convince Luke to stay on the farm for another season, Luke protests, but it's, insert phrase here, year. And I'm sure 1977 wasn't the first time it was used either. My thinking is that Josh is a Luke Skywalker guy. And if he wore out his VHS tape like I did, he would have thought that anything Luke said was worth repeating. We know Josh wasn't a Star Trek guy, but if he had been, he would have gotten from that series a terrible tendency to split infinitives. The Star Trek mission is, of course, to boldly go where no man has gone before. I guess no matter what poison we picked, the science fiction of our youth was destined to ruin our grammar for us. By now, you should be close to achieving your goal and the size donation Han Solo would have risked life and limb for. So may the force be with you. For the Despite record, Despite the force. No, go ahead. <laughs> for the record, I was a Han Solo guy. Yeah. I am a Han Solo guy. I was of, too. Of course. <laughs> and uh, But I like Derek's theory here. It, it's either that or Tatooine, before I thought it was maybe a Southside Chicago thing. <laughs> maybe Tatooine is maybe. the Southside of Chicago. Maybe. maybe you were the inspiration for Luke Skywalker. Well, Somehow Luke I, I would have been saying this at three years old in that case, but well, possibly. Despite... The force being oh, on your side, Josh. I blew it. We heard from so many oh, man. listeners. No responses, really, to our long content, review of The Look of Silence. No. I mean, really, everyone was just okay with Grave that. subject matter, serious That's film, right. well done. Fine. What, what do we hear about? We hear about, insert phrase here, <laughs> and how Josh, at the 11-minute mark of our last show, ruined our donation. I'm going to have to garnish your wages. Well, I have a question, though. Was this a one-time offer that if we go, I think it was four shows. I think it was like without eight me shows. Use, was it eight yeah, shows? Yeah, I think it was six or eight Boy, shows. it's never going to happen. No. But just if – do we I get another we shot? No. Do we get I another think we shot? I think we need another shot if only because half of those shows were – we were rerunning top five lists. So I might have said it in one of those lists. Oh, that's a good point. And really it wasn't, you know, I was getting half a show to not say it. So uh-huh. it would have been easier for me. Okay. So I haven't really been challenged uh-huh. yet. I think once we start doing full new we'll shows, see. then we start the we'll, counter. We'll dig up the original listener email and, and beg for forgiveness and see what we can get out of it. A quick note about our music this week. A trio of sisters from the UK. You've been hearing the staves from the album If I Was, produced by Bone Ivers. Justin Vernon. Lots of fall dates in the UK. More information at thestaves.com. Let's get to some more listener comments as we want to thank listeners who donated some of their hard-earned dollars our way in support of the show. And they didn't even put demands on us. Like we had to not say certain things <laughs> this, for this is just a certain like, period of time. Here, take my money. Thanks. Yeah, just that like what you're doing. Too? That look of silence review was great. Here's some money. <laughs> Liz in Boston, Mass, who says, I started listening to the show on a recommendation from a friend about a year ago and have become a huge fan. I realize that so much time has gone by since I started listening. It was definitely time to donate. Thanks for all of your wonderful reviews and for turning me on to so many movies over the past year. And only partly joking there, 
Liz did write in about our Look of Silence review. We heard from probably four or five other listeners who all specifically chimed in to rebut our claim, specifically brought it by me, about the scene in particular during the Look of Silence where we felt like we didn't really understand why Oppenheimer left the camera rolling oh, while right, he decided right. to leave that scene in the film. And with apparently, the father. Yeah, with the father. And apparently all these listeners were at the same screening where Oppenheimer was in attendance, or maybe they were all at different screenings, and the question just got brought up by lots of people throughout the world who have watched this film because they all had an answer for it hmm. that Oppenheimer well, we addressed. We should get to that in feedback at some we point. We will get to it at some point. We also heard from J.D. from the In Session Film Podcast. He lives in Lexington, Kentucky. A podcast I've been on a few times. J.D. says, my donation this time isn't for anything specific other than I love the show and listen to it every week. Thanks for being awesome. Well, J.D. is going to get a dose of me here soon. We'll see if I can live up to Josh Larson. I'm going to be on the In Session Film Podcast in September. Nice. I have the tall order of naming my top five films of the decade so far. Really? That's something we've avoided. Yeah, we've avoided. And now you're getting pinned down for yeah, In I'm Session. I'm getting pinned down. So okay. I went back to a list we shared in bonus content where I had an initial list of maybe about 13 movies that would be in the running, 13 or 14. And actually, after our review of The Look of Silence, it made me realize that I needed to add The Act of Killing to the shortlist. Does J.D. know he should prepare for a three-hour show? <laughs> he does now. <laughs> Justin Shelton in Aurora, Illinois, sent us a great, very long letter. And we're only going to read part of it here. He said... At the time he started listening, he was a junior in high school. He had a hard time sleeping, so he'd turn on the radio, and he'd turn on NPR, and he'd hope that it would help lull him to sleep. And initially, Josh, that seemed to work, but he says, I don't know when exactly the shift happened, but as I started to engage more in my studies and interact with my music and English professors at my local community college, I started to fall in love with storytelling. I started to write fiction and read everything I could get my hands on. When I would try to fall asleep to my normal radio program, I suddenly began to listen. And once I started listening, darn it, guys, I couldn't stop. In fact, I would purposely leave my Fridays or Saturdays each week free so I could catch each week's episode. I would stay up for the entire hour and odd minutes, and then I could never sleep because I'd be thinking and debriefing in my head. I started to try and find all the essential movies that I'd missed in my life to try and catch up. I scoured $5 bins and video store clearance racks every week. Then I figured that it was worth investing in Netflix and Hulu Plus's Criterion Collection if I really wanted to take this cinema thing seriously. Justin continues, I watched my first Scorsese, Coen Brothers, PT. Wes Anderson, Altman, Bergman, Jarmusch, Coppola, Francis, and Sophia, Sidney Lumet, De Palma, Billy Wilder, Sergio Leone, Von Trier, Linkletter, Alexander Payne, Steve McQueen, Joe Swanberg, etc., etc. God, you've even got me to watch movies I thought as a cool high schooler I could never watch. Now I love Pitch Perfect. Thanks, Adam. My job here is done. You guys were formative in my maturing into an adult by teaching me how to have good debate, good criticism, listen well, challenge well, etc., etc. I now have a smartphone and I listen religiously. I just made a one-time donation and I will definitely be making multiple a year as soon as I can. How about that? Listening's dangerous. It is dangerous. It's safer to just use this as white noise, apparently. There you go. Thank you so much, Justin, J.D., Liz, and to all of our listeners, especially our monthly subscribers. You guys really are the lifeblood of the show. And if you haven't in a while rated us on iTunes, or I should say if you never have rated us, even though you've been listening for many years or just one year or a couple months, 
We love to get five-star ratings. It doesn't hurt. It always does help us grow the show and helps new listeners discover us. So please, if you haven't done it already, take a second to go to iTunes and give us a rating there. Josh, I spoke too soon. We have one more great email and great donation. It's a Silver Club donation. It comes to us from Ricardo Salcedo Martinez in Santiago, Chile at the time of writing, though that was just for the next two days. Today, I finally donated to your show after four years of listening. I began listening to your show just as I was coming out of film school in late 2011. I was looking for a way to stay in touch with film every day, even if I wasn't studying it formally anymore. I found your website and became an avid listener ever since. In 2012, I thought to myself, I should wait till I have something to plug on their show to donate. When I have a movie, a short, something coming out somewhere, I'll donate. In 2013, I got my first job on a feature film as assistant editor on a big commercial movie in Chile. I promised myself that I would use the first of my feature film work money to pay the piper, but alas, other expenses got in the way first. 2014 was a year I didn't get to work on film at all. I explored some personal projects, but overall I just ended up frustrated by my day job selling bakery supplies, exciting I know, taking up all my time. It was that year that I began to apply to grad school. In 2015, I got admitted to the School of the Art Institute of Chicago. Again, when I was admitted, I wanted to pay the piper because your influence was a big part of why I applied there in the first place. Your descriptions of the film scene in Chicago, the Gene Siskel Film Center, the festivals, the movies seemed like just the kind of people I wanted to be around. Alas, I wasn't absolutely sure I could attend. It's a very expensive school, and I needed to find the money to fund it. I also got into the School of Visual Arts in New York, but again, I leaned towards Chicago in part because of your show. Thankfully, I'm excited to say I got a scholarship from the Ecuadorian government, I'm part Chilean and Ecuadorian, to complete my graduate studies at the School of the Art Institute. When I found out about the scholarship, I knew I'd be destined to be a poor grad student, but now that I was sure I'd be moving to Chicago, I also knew I had to pay up. I put it off day after day, but now I'm only one day away from getting on that flight to the Windy City. Now, he says all that, all this great stuff, but God bless him, Josh, he has to throw in a little bit of a dig at us. He says, while I'm here, I might as well say I'm a little disappointed you guys review such few South American movies. I'd recommend a South American marathon or some of the films of Raul Ruiz, Patricio Guzman, Sebastian Cordero, Juan Jose Campanella, Alicio Subiela, or someone. He's so desperate, he'll take anyone. (laughs) Someone. That is a great idea. All of those directors are unknown to me. So we will look to you Ricardo, for some guidance if we ever do traverse down that path. And now that you are here in Chicago officially, we're going to let it out of the bag a little bit. We are planning a wrap party this year. There's going to be a live show in January. Ricardo, we certainly hope you will be there. And even though you donated and you're supporting the show, we'll support you. We'll be happy to buy you a drink and congratulate you on your film work. He linked to some of his short films, Josh. I haven't had a chance to watch yet, but if any of our listeners are curious, we'll link to at least one of them in our show notes. Shaking out the sheets and holding on, holding on, following my feet until it's gone, till it's gone. Hey, I'm Ty Sheridan. And I'm David Gordon Green, the director of the film Joe, and we're here on Film Spotting. This is Film Spotting with Adam and Josh. It's top five time. And after giving ourselves the summer off from producing new top fives, we will return next week with a vengeance to original top five making. Our fall movie preview next week will feature the equivalent of two top five lists plus plus the additional attraction of a guest appearance from our very own regular contributor, Mr. Michael Phillips from the Chicago Tribune. Can we have Michael just give his list? I I don't know if I'm ready to start working again. I'm with you. I am so with you. For this, our final top five revisit of the summer, we chose one of our favorite lists from the past couple of years. So no tie-in really to our review, Mistress America. We just wanted to go with a top five 
from the fairly recent past that we really were proud of. And we'll see if we had anything to be proud of by the time it's over. It was naturally a listener suggestion. All the best ideas here on Film Spotting are top five desert island directors. So the five director filmographies we'd take with us to the proverbial desert island. Josh, I don't know if when you initially looked back at this top five, were you horrified or shocked? No, I I felt pretty good about it. I would say that I certainly have one personal pick that maybe isn't a canon director, Mm -hmm. but is in my canon. And you maybe have two like that. But I think these are respectable lists. The challenge for me, what am I going to do with Satchajit Ray now? Good point. Because we had not seen. Yeah, this is April... 2014. This was before our Ray Marathon. Yeah. And I have to find a place for him on this list, but who's going to go? Kurosawa, who I had (laughs) at number five, as you'll hear? I don't know if I can do that. So... That's a challenge. It is indeed. The other thing that made this a really fun top five was that it originally coincided with an interview I did with director David Gordon Green around the time of the release of his movie Joe, his film that starred Nicolas Cage and Ty Sheridan. Wonderful guy that David Gordon Green is. He agreed to play along with our foolish top five and share his own top five Desert Island directors, a list definitely more eccentric even than ours. And we get into that top five now with a clip from one of his picks. Oh, she may be weary And young girls, they do get weary Wearing that same old shaggy dress But when she gets weary Try a little tenderness. That's music from The Commitments, the 1991 movie adaptation of the Roddy Doyle novel about an Irish soul band and a movie that would accompany director David Gordon Green to a desert island along with the filmographies of his Desert Island directors, which is the subject of this week's Film Spotting Top 5. I'm happy to report, Josh, that yes, David Gordon Green was game to play along with our silly little bit of nonsense here, and with only a little bit of advance warning, rattled off his picks, including arguably a couple of surprises. So before we get into our list, here he is with his answer to the question, you're alone on a desert island, you've got a TV and a DVD player, Somehow. The complete works of which five directors do you bring along? Well, it's a tough question. I know regardless of what I say, I'm going to wake up tomorrow kicking myself for not giving the other guy. But I would say Alan Parker, Robert Altman, John Ford, Stanley Kubrick, and John Landis. Really? Yeah. John Landis maybe stands out a little bit, but obviously a person who tremendously influential right about the time you were probably really discovering cinema. All the R-rated movies that I wasn't supposed to see that were really inspiring from American Werewolf to Blues Brothers. So many, so many great Mm -hmm. movies. And diverse, you know, these are guys that I think outside of John Ford, who I think stuck to one thing and did it really, really well. A lot of these guys I just find as role models thematically uh, that jump genres, jump content structure and style and, and have, have a lot of surprises and the roller coasters of their careers. What are the Alan Parker films that stand out from you? He's a director, I have to confess, I don't think in the 10 years of doing this show has come up very oh. often. He's oh not someone God. who gets a lot of love. You know what? And that's true uh, because I don't think he, he doesn't splash the film by Alan Parker kind of label. He doesn't have that signature branding about him because he's constantly challenging himself and doing something new mm-hmm. from Mississippi Burning to Midnight Express to Road to Wellville, The Commitments, uh, Evita, 
so many incredible movies that that guy has made that are all over the place. I mean, he's just always looking at new... I mean, a lot, you could look at music as a theme, because that's certainly a reoccurring thing. Bugsy mm-hmm. Malone. I mean, you know, who, who doesn't want a good Scott Bayo movie on their resume? <laughs> Cheer up. There's a million other jobs. Sir Buster, standing on the street corner with a hat to catch the dimes in. It's only a matter of time. I just cooled down. Look, Buster, I've been walking the streets of New York for six months now. The only fancy steps I've been doing is to avoid the man who collects the rent. So it takes time to be a movie star. We can always come back tomorrow. Alan Parker, not a name that gets invoked much here on Film Spotting. Scott Bayo, never been invoked. <laughs> First time, huh? In 10 years on Film Spotting. But there he is in Alan Parker's Bugsy Malone from 1976. Of course, the very memorable. I would say even infamous, if you will, gangster film set in Depression-era Chicago and acted by an all-child cast with music and also starring Jodie Foster. You have to love the 70s. Alan Parker, the director and one of Gordon Green's five Desert Island directors, along with Altman, Kubrick, Ford, and Landis. You heard him list those picks there. Josh, I know that one of those names, spoiler alert here, appears on your list. But did any of Green's other picks get any consideration? Uh, Not Really, Ford no. would be the only one. Yeah, I kicked that one around. Of an obvious one, but this is this is quite an interesting list. Yeah, Green came up with here. I I never would have guessed Parker. I mean, Landis is an oddball choice, but I kind of understand it just because I know fanatics who love mm-hmm. everything he's done. I've never heard anyone talk about Parker that way, so won't be making my list. I I do want to clarify a few things before I start with my number five. We're not on this island together, right? For sure. It's it's my island, and then you're on your other island. Maybe we can see each other. Like there's 30 sounds yards like, of water in between. Sounds like wishful thinking on your part. I love well, that you went there, though. You had to think about that before doing your list. I took. This, Am I stuck with him? I, I took this literally okay. because honestly, it was one way to keep this from being the top five directors of all time list. Right? Because it's not that it's, it's not something that. a little bit different absolutely so i went with directors you know who who didn't do a lot with water because i imagine i'm <laughs> going to be thirsty on this island but i also seriously wanted i didn't want to double up on similar genres uh, i didn't want to double up on similar thematic concerns or styles uh, because you know we're going to be on these islands for a while i want some variety so to keep this from being the top five directors of all time i i looked for a little variation here okay i did the same though for once you may have thought about a list and broken it down more than I did. Not possible. I don't know. I think maybe you did. You have a lot more criteria this time than I did. But I do want to say this as we set up the top five, that it did occur to me as I was thinking about these picks, and this, of course, was very, very hard. It couldn't be a more arbitrary list because it is so random and, of course, not likely (laughs) to ever happen. Let's say that. We hope. Yeah, and most of our top fives are arbitrary, but like any good list— This one really does force you to consider what you value in cinema, I think. And the real challenge for me was after you get past the obvious criteria, things like quantity of films, quality in terms of story, cast, script, directing, the overall entertainment value, whatever you normally look for, you do have to realize, or I at least realize, that I also watch movies very much for edification, whether on a superficial level. So when I'm at a cocktail party, because... When I'm not here at the studio, I actually do spend most of my time living in high society yes. New York circa 1952. I can say, yes, I've seen that. I have thoughts about it. Let's talk about it. Or to watch these films and see how these filmmakers reckon with the larger philosophical questions of life. The problem is if you're stranded on a desert island, you don't have anyone to impress. Nobody cares what you're watching. No, nor do you really need 
provocation to reckon with these serious questions because all you have is time to think about them. The chances of you being able to apply any insights whatsoever you've gleaned from a work of art to your everyday existence are nil. You're all alone. So what I'm really trying to say in summary is Ingmar Bergman is just an honorable mention for me. (laughs) That's your excuse, huh? That's it. All right. I'll take it. Number five for me, Akira Kurosawa. He strikes me as an elemental filmmaker. This is going a little bit against what you just said, though. His movies do wrestle with these sorts of questions that we're always going to wrestle with and we'll probably never fully figure out. I mean, consider 1950s Rashomon, which is set in 11th century Japan. It features frequent Kurosawa collaborator Toshiro Mifune as a bandit who encounters an aristocrat and his wife in the woods. A crime occurs and uh, later on witnesses give varying reports, conflicting testimonies as to what might have happened. So this is all about The definition of truth, the mystery of human nature, really good fodder for desert island debates, which I'm going to be having with myself. Right, (laughs) This is what I'm saying. Well, maybe I'm more open to just talking to myself, I guess. (laughs) Similarly to Rashomon, Ikiru is about nothing less than the prospect of facing death. Stray dog explores the nature of evil. These are big bedeviling ideas at play here. Uh, But here's the thing about Kurosawa. I'm also going to have a number of grand entertainments along with me, like The Seven Samurai or like... Yojimbo. So he definitely brings that to the table, too. Uh, The list could go on. He directed over 30 films, but you get the idea. These films, uh, they're from one of the early masters of world cinema, and they just have to be on that island with me. Hmm. It's a great pick and one I definitely considered along with Ingmar Bergman before I wrote it off for just being too damn heavy (laughs) for this desert island. But I don't know if you saw it. Just last night before coming in here to record the show, I posted on our Twitter page and our Facebook page a challenge to give a listener a film spotting T-shirt if they could most closely predict my top five. Oh, yeah, I did see that. And I'm going to report that even though many, many listeners responded and many listeners know me very well when you look at their picks and you consider my top five and my honorable mentions – Nobody got more than three right. And I think a big reason why is because of my number five pick. Nobody guessed this filmmaker. And before I say the name, before I reveal my pick, I do want to give a little bit of an explanation. One of the first images that popped into my head, thinking about being alone on a desert island, was, believe it or not, Charlton Heston at the beginning of The Omega Man. He's basically the last man on Earth. And one of his rituals to pass the time, anybody who's seen the movie will remember, is to go to his nearby movie theater and he strings up the last movie that was playing there, which is Woodstock the movie. We see him watching and reciting lines from it. It could be any movie, really, and probably something meant to be ironic in the fact that a movie about idealism and all the possibilities for humanity is being juxtaposed with this film, this setting of destruction and the complete absence of humanity, not to mention the irony of Mr. NRA himself, Chuck Heston, reveling in these damn hippies. This is really beautiful, right? You know, like, you know, you have to realize the turn of hell that I've gone through in the last... In the last three days, to just to see, just to really realize what's really important. What's really important, the fact that, that if we can't all live together and be happy, if you have to be afraid to walk out in the street, if you have to be afraid to smile at somebody, right? What, what, what kind of a way is that to go through this life? I thought there was something poignant about this lonely guy just wanting to immerse himself with other people. 
masses of people, real people, as far as the eye can see. And that made me think of the documentarian Frederick Wiseman. Made 42 documentary films, starting with Titicut Follies in 1967. A lot of them, I'll admit, I still haven't seen. And part of that is because they're not readily available. You have to catch them either on PBS or you can order them from his Zipora Films website. It's Zipora.com. That's where I ordered Titicut and High School and Public Housing, which was shot here in Chicago. He uses those kinds of titles because he often dives into these institutions, these basic pillars of society. Movies like Law and Order, Basic Training, Boxing Gym, Hospital, Ballet. He goes into these worlds that are microcosms of society and largely gets out of the way. He's an invisible filmmaker, but he has these amazing instincts in terms of where to put the camera, where to focus the camera, and where to find the story in the editing once he's gone through all of that footage. And I guess I just figured if I'm going to be alone like Chuck Heston... I want to be reminded of the full spectrum of humanity, the beautiful, the bad, the in-between, and that is what Frederick Wiseman captures. I still need to see At Berkeley Part 2. That was his documentary from last year, four-hour, two-part film about a semester, I think the fall of 2010, at Berkeley out in California and really explores what a public institution, what a state institution has to go through and the classroom dynamics and everything associated with a school like that. Part one was really good, and I still need to see part two, like I said, but being able to dive into that massive humanity is something I think I'd want to do if I was all alone. Well, I would have predicted a documentarian for your list. Actually, I don't know if I would have landed on Wiseman, but it does make sense. I think this is one of the elemental ways you and I differ, though, I, I never occurred to me as much as I do appreciate documentaries and often will have one or two on my top 10 list at the end of every year. Never occurred to me to think of a documentary filmmaker for this list. There's maybe something for me too literal mm -hmm. about them that is exactly what you appreciate, right. it sounds like. But for me, it, it doesn't sound appealing to have that with me. On the island, even though I can think even as I'm saying that of documentaries like my favorite movie of last year, Leviathan, that's not literal at all. Very immersive. Mm -hmm. So um, that's painting them a little bit too broadly. But still, this is why I'm glad we have these separate islands, you know, and it's <laughs> right. not a joint list. My number four is someone that David Gordon Green did actually pick. It's Stanley Kubrick. Totally with him there. I realize... I don't want to only have directors whose work I have a pretty good handle on. I want someone whose work I'm still wrestling with. And the truth is, I haven't figured Stanley Kubrick out yet. I mean, even after our recent Sacred Cow review of 2001 A Space Odyssey, I did feel I was maybe a bit closer to wrapping my mind around that, but I'm still left with that crucial question of whether Kubrick is this clinical humanist or this doomsday pessimist. Uh, I'm leading toward the latter. I think you differ from me there. Um, but really, this is a question that you could apply to a lot of Kubrick's work. Paths of Glory, A Clockwork Orange, probably Full Metal Jacket, what perspective he's coming from and he's, he's trying to communicate. Uh, Kubrick also, though, a little bit like Kurosawa, it isn't always heavy lifting. It's going to be nice to have some comedies on this island, even if Dr. Strangelove or Barry Lyndon, they aren't comedies of the conventional kind. So Kubrick is a filmmaker that haunts me when I typed his name into my own website search engine just to revisit some of the things I'd written. It brought up all his films, but also every time I've referenced him in other reviews and I realized I referenced this guy a lot. So I think that sort of speaks to how I am still wrestling with him and his influence, which is why I'd want those films with me. Yeah, you explained it well, and it does make total sense. At the same time, when you did reveal to me that Kubrick was going to make your list. And he was someone who, when I first started just rolling 
filmmakers around in my head, Kubrick was number one on my list. And okay. I think people who've listened to the show, especially some of those Sacred Cow discussions, even though we were both on the same page more or less with 2001 in terms of its greatness – safe to say I come off as more of a Kubrick fanboy than you, and that's something that I've only come to recently because of a lot of these discussions. I mean, I've always liked him and Mm -hmm. respected him as a filmmaker, but I've gotten to the point where, you know, I've said on the show, he might be our greatest filmmaker. I mean, you could really have that conversation. So he was one I was kicking around and pleasantly surprised to see him make it. So just off my list. I had one documentarian with my number five pick. I've got another one at number four. That's one of the many hats this filmmaker wears. He is Werner Herzog. And when I gave my list to our producer, Sam, he said this, between Wiseman and Herzog, you've pretty much got humanity documented from the mundane to the sublime. Hmm. So Sam, as he usually does, absolutely nailed it. I don't know if I would have said it that well, that eloquently and succinctly, but he nailed exactly why I have Frederick Wiseman on this list and why I have a director like Werner Herzog as well. You have 60 plus movies to keep you occupied. And as we said, quantity does matter somewhat here as you're all alone for who knows how much time. But During my interview with David Gordon Green earlier in the show, he mentioned the influence of Herzog with narrative movies like Strocek with Bruno S. But of course, you've got all those great collaborations with Klaus Kinski that have become film spotting favorites like Fitzcarraldo and Agira, The Wrath of God, also Nosferatu. Then those docs, experimental stuff to chew on like Fata Morgana and Lessons of Darkness with more traditional documentaries like Grizzly Man, Little Dieter Needs to Fly, of course, remade later by Herzog as Rescue Dawn, Cave of Forgotten Dreams, Encounters at the End of the World, which is a movie I like, not as much as the other docs I just mentioned, but it's a film where he travels to Antarctica and shows you all the creatures who inhabit this strange space, including some of the people who have found their way there and gets into their stories a little bit. Herzog just takes his camera into places very, very few filmmakers are curious enough to go, And if they are curious enough, they're maybe not daring and dumb enough to go. And again, I just imagine myself being stuck on an island, wanting to be transported, wanting movies to be my escape. Who else but Herzog is going to take you to not only Antarctica, but Laos, Kuwait, the Sahara, the Amazon jungle. You can go on and on and on with him. You do realize, though, you're essentially bringing Herzog with you as well, not just his films. I mean, the way he inserts himself, particularly in the documentaries, mm-hmm. obviously, you're okay with that. You're a okay with having him on the island, too. Werner Herzog's voice is not a world I want to inhabit. One of these disoriented or deranged penguins showed up at the New Harbor diving camp, already some 80 kilometers away from where it should be. The rules for the humans are do not disturb or hold up the penguin. Stand still and let him go on his way. And here he's heading off into the interior of the vast continent. With 5,000 kilometers ahead of him, he's heading towards certain death. My number three is Robert Brisson. This was the first marathon that I was a part of after joining the show. And what a rich filmography to begin with. You have Alhazard Balthazar, his portrait of humanity through the eyes of a passive donkey. It's one of my top 10 of all time when we recently forced ourselves to do that list around the sight and sound list. We also watched Mouchette, A Man Escaped, Pickpocket, and Diary of a Country Priest, These are all sparse and challenging pictures that grapple at some level with the distance between God and man. 
And if Kubrick jokes around some of these same big questions at times, Brisson really agonizes over them. I mean, on this island, I don't know which filmmaker would have to be the chaser if I'd watch Brisson and then go to Kubrick to lighten the mood or vice versa. I can't imagine Brisson ever lightening any mood, though. So probably Kubrick would be second. Uh, Brisson, he is. He's the the tougher watch, um, a clockwork orange notwithstanding. Uh, with his preference for rigid performances, stark compositions, his unflinching camera, he turns acts of extreme discipline into art. Uh, but, you know, sometimes the tough watches, those are the most rewarding ones. They are indeed. You're listening to Film Spotting, where we're sharing our top five desert island directors, not necessarily our favorite directors, not necessarily even the ones we would say are the best directors of all time, though they're is likely some crossover. There are a lot of other factors we're considering. And before we get to my number three pick, I do want to give a shout out to the listener who suggested this top five. It's one we had never really considered, oddly enough, but Mindaugas Mozuris, about a month ago, sent us this idea. He said he was listening to an amazing interview with none other than Stanley Kubrick, pretty appropriate. And he says he came up with this question, which director's filmography would you bring with you to a desert island to watch for eternity for all you know, makes you consider variety and number of movies each created. Difficult choice, I'd say. That's Mindaugas. He's in Vilnius, Lithuania. We're continuing our international theme here. Love getting emails from listeners in Lithuania and great top five ideas from listeners from anywhere. He shared his top five. We'll share it at the end of this segment. My number three Desert Island director is Howard Hawks. And in response to my challenge on Twitter last night, one of our listeners, Michael Sparr, said, when people do these lists, they never include a good genre director to provide some variety. My choice, John Carpenter. Michael makes a really valid point, but I think we probably would both agree that the ideal scenario here, you touched on this a little bit, would be to pick directors who worked in multiple genres so you could have some variety. I like John Carpenter a lot. I don't know that I'd want to watch that same style. Not that they're all exactly the same, but he makes a lot of horror, you know, thrillers and sometimes with some humor. I might get a little bit tired of that for all eternity. So with that in mind, I go to a director like Hawks, who made 47 films covering genres like adventure dramas. You've got To Have and Have Not, Only Angels Have Wings, both films I like quite a bit. Comedies like 20th Century, Bringing Up Baby, His Girl Friday, Monkey Business with Cary Grant and Marilyn Monroe, and I Was a Male War Bride, also with Cary Grant. Of course, he made The Big Sleep, which is a classic hard-boiled detective film noir. He made sci-fi movies with The Thing from Another Planet, which inspired Carpenter's yeah, you got Carpenter the Thing. covered right there. There it is. Musicals, Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, and, yes, Westerns, Red River and Rio Bravo. He made, arguably, the definitive film in a bunch of those genres. If you think about it, for me, His Girl Friday is the ultimate screwball comedy. Yeah. The Big Sleep, right up there in terms of the ultimate film noirs. And Rio Bravo, hands down for me, my favorite Western. And really, I think you can make the case to just pick Hawks for this Desert Island list just to make sure you had Rio Bravo there, if nothing else. Because if I'm going to be stuck by myself for the end of time, I want to be stuck with John Wayne's Sheriff John T. Chance and Dean Barton's The Dude and Ricky Nelson's Colorado and, yes, Walter Brennan's Stumpy, just as they're stuck together in that jail waiting for bad Nathan Burdett to make his move. Howard Hawks just covering that classical Hollywood cinema, all those different types of films, and some true masterpieces in there as well. Had to be on my list. Gonna hang my sombrero on the limb of a tree 
coming home Sweetheart, darling Just my rifle, pony and me Whippoorwill In the willow Yeah, that, that's a great pick. I mean, you really, you've got everything you need right there. My number two is going to be a much more contemporary name and probably one, if I had put that challenge out, listeners would have guessed. It's Wes Anderson. It's my sheer pleasure pick. The movies that are simply going to give me the most comfort and the most joy, even if melancholy is probably the best way to describe Anderson's films. I also thought that these all can't be canon picks. Uh, I wanted to have one that I have the privilege of living with now because I think we have unique relationships with the work of those directors who are active at the same exact time that we're active as viewers. You know, think about being able to be in Kubrick or Brisson's original audience. Uh, as much as we can appreciate and go back and revisit those films today, it's still different, I believe. We're, we're viewing those through a different lens than something like the Grand Budapest Hotel, which mm-hmm. just came out. And the other thing about Anderson's films, and this has been heard quite often by me in terms of the Grand Budapest Hotel, is that they're demanding of repeated viewings, which obviously is going to be essential in this scenario. One viewing can concentrate on the music in his films. I mean, you can simply explore what he's chosen in terms of music, how he uses it and what it means. You can do the same thing with the set designs. You can do the same thing with the costumes. I mean, really every element of filmmaking is so intricately layered and meticulously designed here that his films, they're just rich for continual exploration. And this also brings me back to comedy again. I mean, if Kubrick's comedies make me laugh in my head a little bit, Anderson's are the ones that make me laugh out loud and in my heart, even if I know the joke is coming. Uh, Michael Phillips, when he was filling in and we did our Wes Anderson show and picked scenes, that one he chose from Rushmore with Bill Murray turning around and going after his bratty kid in the car, that's one I mentioned to Michael. I just burst out loud, even though I can predict to the exact nanosecond when Bill Murray is going to snap, it still gets me. Now, Adam, I know that you were a little bit tepid, unsure about the Grand Budapest Hotel. So I'm partly making this pick to kind of force you to to do that bonus content down the road here where where I can try to convince you um, of what you might have missed. We will get to that at some point, I promise. And we'll go for my number two pick to a comedy filmmaker, a director who really is known mostly for his comedies, though that's not all he does. And another one that, yes, many listeners predicted correctly for me, and that's Woody Allen. The pro with Woody is that he's got almost 50 movies as a director to choose from. The con is that those 50 movies include direct like Hollywood ending and small time crooks. Yeah, the ratio isn't necessarily great. And the Jade Scorpion. But, Josh, despite that ratio, and I've never really sat down and actually mapped it out, I would still say there are more positives than negatives, for me anyway, with Woody's career. That list also includes four of my top 50 films of all time. And I'm guessing here because I've never actually sat down and made a list of my top 50 films ever. But Annie Hall would be there. Manhattan would be there. Crimes and Misdemeanors would be there. Hannah and Her Sisters may be on the outside looking into those 50, but it'd be in the running. These are movies you talked about rewatchability with Wes Anderson. Maybe not as much exploration with Woody in these films, though I think there's plenty to mine. They are, for me, simply that rewatchable. I love the stories. I love the characters. I love the jokes in these films. And you certainly aren't getting the variety genre-wise that someone like Howard Hawks offers, but you do have silly comedies like Bananas and Take the Money and Run and Love and Death. 
And then those more sophisticated ones like Annie Hall in Manhattan, but also Purple Rose of Cairo, which I love, and Radio Days. And then you can go to those serious dramas. I can get into the Josh Brisson watching mode on my <laughs> desert island and take in movies like Interiors and Another Woman and even Matchpoint. Some movies, I think, like Sweet and Lowdown, they have only gotten better with time the more I've seen them. So I think Woody as well might be a nice counter to my previous pick, Howard Hawks, and all of his testosterone, with Woody having so many of his movies featuring really dominant, really strong female characters. And you, in a way, have the Ingmar Bergman pick covered a little you bit. Do don't a you bit, with so. especially another woman and interiors yes indeed all right number one it was the one for me i knew it was going to be number one right away alfred hitchcock uh, this would have been the case no matter what but i had a recent experience that just solidified it for me you know often we're watching things because of something we have an upcoming review of it or we're doing research for a top five list i find it's rare that i'm watching something impulsively these days uh, just because I'm in the mood for it. And this isn't a bad thing. It's just the way we're consuming movies. Well, a few weeks ago, I just found myself having this longing to watch a Hitchcock film. I just wanted to watch one. It'd been a while, and I had this overwhelming urge for the kind of experience that only his films can give. Uh, Thankfully, I was able to scratch that itch because Michael Phillips and I were doing our top five movie boat, so I got a chance to watch Lifeboat for the first time. There's also a practical reason, though, to put him at number one, and it goes back to your Hawks pick a little bit. There's not a practical reason to have a boat on a desert island? <laughs> well, I Maybe you could learn so. something and escape, I so. get away? Though, with Hitchcock's filmography, maybe I wouldn't want to leave. True. He's got something in just about every genre, like Hawks, and he's done it well, like Hawks. I mean, he's got horror with Psycho and the Birds, thriller with Vertigo and Shadow of a Doubt, Romance with Notorious and To Catch a Thief, A Spy Caper like North by Northwest, and then comedies too, The Trouble with Harry, and maybe we're back to the birds again. Of course, there's also the fact that I've been using Rear Window as my default answer to that question you and I get from time to time. What's your favorite movie of all time? Rear Window is where I've been going lately. Mostly, though, my reason for Hitchcock at number one is it's just simple. His movies are art and entertainment in one brilliant package just about every time. How's your leg? It hurts a little. And your stomach? Empty as a football. And do you love life? I'm not too active. Anything else bothering you? Mm-hmm. Who are you? Can't argue with it. Hitchcock was someone I strongly considered, and I think this is probably a good time for us to mention the list from our listener who gave us this topic, the Desert Island directors. Mindaugas, he had Akira Kurosawa and Stanley Kubrick and Alfred Hitchcock, just like you. very nice. And he also had Martin Scorsese and Steven Spielberg. Mm. So a good list there from our listener in Lithuania. And that brings us to my number one. I mentioned that non-existent list of my top 50 films of all time. It have three Woody Allen movies on it. It would also have three films from Billy Wilder. Double Indemnity, The Apartment, and Sunset Boulevard. And here's the thing about Wilder. I almost equally love Ace in the Hole and Stalag 17. Some Like It Hot is my number six Billy Wilder film, for crying out loud. This movie that, you know, is among the top 100 all time for AFI, and a ton of critics would probably put it in their top 10 or 20 ever, maybe one of their favorite comedies of all time, even higher. But for me, it's even behind those other five films. That's how much I love them. And yes, with Wilder, there is some minor stuff you 
on your recent show with Michael talking about sex-obsessed characters, talked about the seven-year itch. For me, Monroe almost salvages that movie. I find that Tom Ewell Not a fan of Tom Ewell, huh? And that character really just... Just really troubling really? and not fun at all in that movie. And you also get movies like Kiss Me Stupid, but there's other less regarded stuff from Wilder like Witness for the Prosecution with Trone Power and Marlena Dietrich and Charles Lawton and his first film, The Major and the Minor, which, yes, is about an army major played by Ray Milan who gets mixed up with a woman played by Ginger Rogers who's pretending to be, yes, a minor to get a cheaper train fare. I really love The Major and the Minor as well. And... I guess I figure as well, Josh, if I'm going to be looking for a friend on that island, because I don't have you, you're apparently miles away, we can't talk. Or 30 yards. It could be. (laughs) Who better to keep you company, seriously, than Jack Lemmon? There's nobody funnier or more endearing and relatable, and sometimes he even seems so lost He could make you forget for a few minutes just how hopeless your situation is stuck on that island as he's trying to figure things out. There's a certain key floating around this office, from Kirkaby to Vanderhoff to Eichelberger to Dobish. It's the key to a certain apartment. And you know who that apartment belongs to? Who? Loyal, resourceful, cooperative C.C. Baxter. Oh. Are you going to deny it? No. How could I deny it? You just let me explain. You'd better. Well, about a year ago, I was going to night school. I was taking this course in advanced accounting. One of the guys in our department, this in Jersey, had to go to a banquet at the Biltmore. His wife was beating him in town. He needed some place to change into a tuxedo, so I gave him the key. And word must have gotten out, because the next thing I knew, all sorts of guys are suddenly going to banquets. Well, you give the key to one guy, you can't say no to another. The whole thing got out of hand. And Pardon me. Lemon was a big reason for me. That clinched this number one spot. But, of course, it's those other films, as I mentioned, just so much good stuff. Another one who worked in a variety of genres as well. A lot of times he took different genres and added to them in some way. He did something that we hadn't seen before. The war movie in Stalag 17, Sunset Boulevard, the movies about movies, and Double Indemnity, I think, took film noir to another place as well. At least it did for me. So Wilder is my number one. Yeah, that's that's good. It was probably my number six, seven, somewhere around there really gave him some consideration too. Those are our top five Desert Island directors. And Josh, you go first. Any others that got strong consideration? Yeah. The only other contemporary filmmakers who could compete with Wes Anderson for my affection right now would be Joel and Ethan Cohen. So thought about trying to squeeze them on this list. I also thought about doing a little bit of a cheat by including Walt Disney as producer, but I mean, the, I the number you of might titles he presided over, uh, just some amazing stuff, and I would love to have some animation there, too. So that was really hard to leave off. Uh, Charlie Chaplin was another name. Some people would probably go Buster Keaton. It seems like you're always forced to choose between those two, even though it's not quite fair, but I would go with Charlie Chaplin. David Gordon Green in the interview mentioned John Ford, thought about that, as I said. And then one more here, Fritz Lang, M, Metropolis. I recently caught up with Dr. Mabuse, The Gambler. I mean, these are all landmark movies. It would be really hard to give up. Well, my three toughest omissions, there's six overall, but the big three you've already covered, they are Kubrick, Hitchcock, and the Coen brothers. Let me ask you something. If the rule you followed brought you to this of what use was the rule 
No Country for Old Men's Anton Chigurh taking exception to whatever set of rules resulted in the Coen brothers on the outside looking into our list of Desert Island directors. And I certainly wouldn't argue with him because he's terrifying. But in this case, he's probably right. I mean, a couple of my honorable mentions. Scorsese, Paul Thomas Anderson, Steven Soderbergh. It's ridiculous. But who we do you should bump redo out? the whole list. Who do you bump no, out? Good That's point. the challenge. Absolutely. And let's hear a few more outrage responses beyond my own to our top five list, Josh. Some of this we did share back in our bonus content. If you have the Film Spotting app, this was from episode 486 of Film Spotting. We heard from Nick Moses in Simi Valley, California. He always likes to keep us in check here on the show. I liked some of your choices very much, but was utterly dumbfounded that neither of you chose Steven Spielberg as a top five, or even mentioned his name in the honorable mentions. Adam, you and I are the same age, and there's no way you grew up loving films without being in awe of Spielberg's work. Regardless of the generation in which you grew up, Raiders of the Lost Ark, Jaws, Saving Private Ryan, and Schindler's List are on everyone's top 100 American films of all time. This isn't even to mention other truly great works like Lincoln, Close Encounters, Jurassic Park, and E.T. I personally really enjoyed War of the Worlds, and Catch Me If You Can as well. Seriously, Adam, Frederick Wiseman, Werner Herzog, Josh, Robert Brasson, each has some great works, no question, but certainly not a resume anything like Spielberg's. If he happened to fall just outside your top fives, I could forgive it, but not even an honorable mention, guys. <laughs> He's right. He's absolutely right. And the reality is apparently we just want to live a life of despair alone on our desert island with Robert <laughs> Brasson and Herzog. Depressing, really depressing. Could have used have, a little Spielbergian have, uplift. Yeah, some fun that Spielberg could give us. In terms of everyone's top 100 American films of all time, I guess this is sacrilege, but Saving Private Ryan and Schindler's List, neither of those films would come close. For me, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Jaws, Absolutely. Close Encounters probably there as well, Nick. Justin Little wrote in, I was surprised neither of you mentioned Orson Welles for the Desert Island director list, but now I'm wondering if it's because you guys have failed to see Othello and Chimes at Midnight. Masterpieces both. And Justin, you're right. Othello especially is so cinematically rich. Check the commentary on Othello. Myron Meisel kills it, and Peter Bogdanovich doesn't too much get in his way. By the way, my director list is Orson Welles. Vicente Minnelli, who can live without the film mana that is MGM musicals. Powell Pressburger, films like, of course, The Red Shoes, Colonel Blimp, and Black Narcissus. Hitchcock, duh, Justin says. And Jean Renoir, The River, Grand Illusion, and Rules of the Game. Just to befuddle Justin even more, when I made this list, I hadn't yet seen The Magnificent Ambersons. I have since seen it. Vastly appreciated it. Still wouldn't put Wells on my list. Okay. Also heard from Gorn, who said, Come on, guys, Kurosawa and documentaries alone on an island for the rest of your life. Be honest now. The first choice would be any prolific porn director from the early 80s. After that, the correct answer would be, in no special order, Alfred Hitchcock, William Wyler, David Lean. Oh, oh a little Zhivago we there could have go. with us. Well, and it would it would last the eternity of our Robert stay. Robert Wise. <laughs> That would be a rather pleasant stay for the next 40 to 50 years, says Goran. I would, of course, try to smuggle in Night of the Hunter hidden among my socks. There you go. Other listeners who have been keeping us honest for several years here on Film Spotting, Eli Bard in New York City. I'm surprised that nobody mentioned Coppola. That means you don't get to watch the greatest gangster movies ever, Godfather 1 and 2, one of the best war movies, and one with certainly the nuttiest backstory, Apocalypse Now, as well as one of the greatest political paranoia thrillers, The Outsiders, and the underrated Gardens of Stone. So you can skip Jack. It's no Pineapple Express, which I don't know what he's referencing. Maybe on an old show, somehow... You praise that film too much, which Pineapple Express. I think you or did Jack. because you like it. Not Jack. Pineapple Express. <laughs> I don't think that happened. That was David but... Gordon Green. There you go. It was the tie into the show. Come to think of it, what director has provided us with more interesting characters than Michael Corleone, Hyman Roth, Harry Call, Colonel Kurtz, and Gary Oldman's Dracula? 
So the problem with Coppola, I think, is that the highs are very high and the lows are jack. Those are our top five Desert Island directors and some of yours. We still want to hear your picks. Email us, feedback at filmspotting.net. You can also leave us a voicemail, 312-264-0744, or find us on Twitter at Filmspotting. That's Adam. I'm at Larson on Film. We're also at Facebook.com slash Filmspotting. Over at Filmspotting.net, you can find 10 years of reviews, marathons, interviews, and top fives. Also at Filmspotting.net, take a moment and vote in the current Film Spotting poll. We want to know your most anticipated fall movie. Out in wide release this weekend, We Are Your Friends. Struggling DJ Zac Efron tries to make it in the music biz. Out in limited release, including here in Chicago, Grandma. This is a road trip movie with Lily Tomlin and Julia Garner, directed by Paul Weitz, who did About a Boy and American Pie. I love Lily Tomlin. She's a national treasure, so I'm curious about that film, as I know you are, Josh. Listen to me, Marlon. This is the Brando documentary culled from hundreds of hours of the actor's audio recordings. By the time this show airs, I will have finished this movie. I've started it. Yet another movie I've started. I'm digging it so far, but I can't recommend it because I haven't finished it. I can't blame you for that because I'm having a similar trouble with the film Phoenix, actually. Oh, really? Yeah, got caught by the expiration date. Oh, see, that's one that I truly couldn't stop watching. I had set aside a couple hours, so it worked, but I could not stop watching the movie Phoenix. Video on demand releases of interest, Digging for Fire, the latest from Chicago's own Joe Swanberg, and Queen of Earth, the latest from Alex Ross Perry, the writer-director behind Listen Up, Philip and The Color Wheel. It stars Elizabeth Moss and Josh. We can't wait to see that film. We're actually planning on talking about it here on the show in a couple of weeks. And again, next week, our show is dedicated to our fall movie preview with Michael Phillips. Film Spotting is produced by Golden Joe Dassault and Sam Van Hogren. Without Sam and Golden Joe, this show wouldn't go. Thanks to associate producer Candace Griffiths, to listener John Madsen for some help tracking down a clip this week, and the listeners of the Film Spotting Advisory Board. And special thanks to everyone at Chicago Public Media. More information is available at chicagopublicmedia.org. Our music this week is from the UK's The Staves and their album, If I Was. More information is at thestaves.com. For Film Spotting, I'm Josh Larson. And I'm Adam Kempinar. Thanks for listening. This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye.